My dad was a really funny guy and he was a gifted storyteller. And my friends and I used to like to sit around and listen to him talk trash. And I was watching the news today and I saw an awful lot of people who I feel like are on the wrong side of history. And I couldn't help but think about my dad and something he liked to say. He would say, if two people love each other, there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to get married because you can't be happy all your life. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and I've been fighting off a bit of a cold for a few days, so if my voice sounds funny, I apologize. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Marty McGuire. Marty's a songwriter, she's a producer, she's a multi-instrumentalist, plays a whole lot of different instruments, and you probably know her from her band, the Dixie Chicks or the Courtyard Hounds. You can find out everything you need to know about Marty at DixieChicks.com or CourtyardHounds.com. I got to spend a few days with Marty while I was in Austin last week and uh, had a really good time. She's really down to earth and easygoing and real pleasant to be around. And uh, we got to meet at my buddy Cameron's house and we sat down and had a a nice conversation that I think you guys will enjoy. Here's Marty McGuire. Well, in the Dixie Chicks, Emily and Natalie and I would get bored on the road because we weren't really partiers. We weren't rock stars in any way. We were very lame on the road. We'd go shopping in the day and maybe to the zoo or, you know, just not partiers at all. But we did find that we liked to wrestle backstage to get off a little steam and a little competitive energy. And it just became something that we did often uh, just for fun. So we each have a wrestling name, which is not really appropriate for public uh, to he- the public to hear, but kind of funny wrestling names. And uh, a promoter we were working with, Louis Messina, he actually got us embroidered wrestling robes. So we each have a wrestling <laughs> robe with our name on the back. And, and then it kind of expanded to we would wrestle and the whole crew and band would stand around and then we would pick people that had to wrestle like it was part of the job. So we would pick like <laughs> the Pilates instructor that hated the makeup artist and, you know, we would make them wrestle like people that were <laughs> really needed to wrestle and get out a little, little anger. So, um, and we, and the road managers were always worried about broken fingers and what, cause we were serious, very serious and competitive with our wrestling. So who, uh, who was the better wrestler? I always won. And I don't know why, because Emily's bigger and stronger than me, and Natalie is such a feisty little thing, um, but I just had the moves. I don't know. 
Did you grow up uh, watching wrestling or? I I don't know anything about wrestling. I just I, you know, no, no, it wasn't a sport I was into. I think just my sisters and I have two sisters, biological sisters, and we grew up acting like boys. We were brutal to each other. We you know, and we would have these things called kick wars. And you'd put on your soccer shin pads. You were allowed to wear shin shin guards. And you'd just kick the crap out of each other until somebody fell down on the ground and couldn't, and crying and couldn't oh get back up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it kind of stemmed from early kick wars. That's brutal. I know. Brutal. Actually, I met, the first president I ever met was Jimmy Carter. And... Um, who came to speak at my father's school and I met President Ford who also spoke at my father's school. He, he started a school for dyslexic kids in Dallas called the Winston School. So that was pretty cool. And then we were on the road and you know how you forget what town you're in? You don't know where you are and you're saying, hello, Cleveland. And it's not Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were in D.C. and I get this call and, and I'm notorious for just being a grumpy morning person and our road manager called my hotel room way too early. I think I had already laid down the law, you know, not to call at this hour. And so I answered the phone and she said, hey, do you want to meet the president today? And I said, um, no. And she said, I said, Emily? And, and I go, well, when? And she said, well, you got to be ready in 30 minutes. And I said, well, are Emily and Natalie? going to meet the president? And she said, yeah, yeah. I said, really? They're going to meet the president? <laughs> I could not fathom why they would wake up that early to go meet the president of the venue. <laughs> In my half-asleep mind, I was, because every time we would go to a new arena, we'd have to meet the you know, the hockey team coach and the president of the whatever association, and they'd give us some lame award and for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I hung up. She's like, okay, okay, well, you know, see you later at Soundcheck. So I hung up the phone and, and she, and I thought, that's not right. That doesn't sound right. I think she's talking about Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. We are in DC, right? So I called her back and said, no, wait, I want to go. I want to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, was he nice? He was very nice. It was his birthday. And Chelsea was there with her boyfriend from college. And um, so it seemed like a very intimate group of people that were got to be with him on his birthday. So we were very honored to get to do that. And we'd all gotten dressed up in our, in our best <laughs> clothes to go meet the president. And um, it, it, it was awesome. He was opening his birthday presents behind his desk in the Oval Office. And we were all standing around. And he, op I guess he collects frogs. And I didn't know that. So he opened this thing. And it looked like a frog. But something was kind of sticking out of it. And it just felt natural to ask him if that was a bong. <laughs> <laughs> And so I did, and my sister kind of elbowed me in the ribs, and, and he <laughs> laughed, and he just went, he said, anyway, and he just kept opening, because that was, that was very much the time of the whole controversy, his controversy. So. Was it tense around the office at all? It didn't feel tense at all. I, I really was impressed with just 
how personable and down to earth and sweet and you know he's an Arkansas boy. I mean he he he's he's got that Southern charm, yeah. um, and I really felt it. I, I always liked him as a president, and I thought he got a raw deal. <laughs> I was like, how, how does this have anything to do with what kind of president he is? I, I don't really care what my presidents do in their private life. I just care what they do in their job. Was he a fan? I d- yeah. I felt like he was familiar with the music. Of course, we gave him a t-shirt and a CD and, you know, but he, he acted like he was already familiar with, with us. So that, he ma- whether that was true or not, I don't know, but he made us feel like that. When you guys were touring at a young age, were you playing like the bluegrass circuits? Yeah, yeah. I joined uh, my first bluegrass band about six months after I started. I switched from classical violin to, to playing the fiddle. And my teacher, Johnny Thorne, who was teaching me out of Garland, Texas, he got me involved in this kids' band. And um, the Davis brothers, I don't know if you ever remember the Davis family, but they also did the circuit. And um, they had a place, a music shop and a rehearsal space out in Grapevine, Texas. And we would drive from Dallas. It's at least an hour away at the time. We were driving out there and we would drive out there and um, they would teach us how to harmonize and give us individual lessons on our instruments and teach us how to be a band. And so I was 12 and only had been playing the fiddle for six months. So had didn't know anything about improv improvisation or coming up with solos you know I relied on music so it kind of threw me into the fire and um, then when my sister who was three years younger when she turned 10 she joined the band it's like a year later and um, we went to luckily the the team the brother sister team that we paired up with their dad had a bus they had he had a prevo like a Brand new, amazing tour bus that was the, kind of their family tour bus, but we got to go on it too. So we were riding in style, <laughs> like right <laughs> from the get-go, which was kind of setting us up for expecting a lot. But we went to, every year we'd go to um, uh, Winfield, Kansas. That was kind of the end of national flat picking championships and there was there's a fiddle contest there and I would enter the fiddle contest and Allison Krauss would always beat me <laughs> <laughs> and Troy Gilchrist who was one of the brother sister team in the band he always entered the flat picking championships and and he he did really well he's an amazing guitar player but we were all young kids and that was our we went to Hugo Oklahoma and all around Texas and Berea Kentucky to the McLean family Festival? Did you ever go to that one? Yeah, yeah. There's a, did you meet any uh, like the bluegrass greats at this time? Did you like? Yeah. Well, looking back, I think of all these jam sessions where I'm seated next to Byron Berline or John Cowan or Bela Fleck or you know or Sam Bush. And at the time, like you were, you were telling me that you got to meet Bill Monroe at a young age and you didn't quite appreciate it. That's looking back, I really have so much appreciation for my parents taking me to all these places and seeing Bill Monroe and back when Ricky Skaggs was doing bluegrass or he was kind of doing the the country thing too, but um, that was a big deal. Um, It always struck me how accessible those people always are at those festivals. Yeah, and they're camping, they're in their tents. Yeah. They've got their little home base tents and uh, jam sessions just like everybody else. And they're the headliners of the festival. I mean, 
it was such an amazing upbringing just to be in that, um, just to be around that. And they always, we were young kids at the time. Now at 43, I, I, you know, looking back, I was such a young kid. And, you know, I remember Byron Berline, you know, it would go around the horn, everybody would take a solo, and you're in this kind of circle of a jam session. And he, even if I didn't want to play, he'd always make me kind of step out there and play. And that's what they did with all the kids in the jam sessions. Would Everybody got a solo. Even if you were on the spoons, <laughs> you got a solo. It was, it was really great. Were you inhibited at all? I am today, even, yes. Oh, no. Especially because I came from a classical background. And, um, again, just that having to create a solo on the spot and know what key you're in and where you can go and what the chord progressions are. Because I, I wasn't really schooled in music. I mean, I took some theory classes and stuff. But I'm more of an ear player. So I have to kind of hear something a couple times. And then I can kind of wing it but yeah being on the spot and having i have a lot of respect for people who can just improv and play jazz and play any kind of music and just kind of fit right in there this it's intimidating i have respect and disdain for them <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i think you almost like have it or you don't you're one kind of musician or you the other and if you're a little of both it, it's really amazing but i learned early on i'm kind of more of a music player Met Loretta Lynn and, and the Courtyard Hounds, the band that I'm in with my sister Emily now. We opened for her two summers ago, and that was amazing. And she was as sweet as she could be. And she, I don't know if I should tell this story, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably shouldn't. It might hurt feelings. But she was just very, very honest, and she remembered us from being young players and, really? and yeah it was, it was amazing how much she remembered because you, you just figure somebody like that an icon just doesn't know who you are um spent a lot of time with us and took the time to talk with us and take photos and it, it was a, it was huge she had a big baby blue powder blue um prom dress on which is exactly how I wanted to see her you know, I'm glad she didn't walk out in jeans and yeah. T-shirt, you know. I, I, I kind of want to remember that moment as the ultimate Loretta Lynn. There's very few people that are still around that I think of, like when they walk in the room, you're like, oh, my God. And she's one of them. Dolly's like that, too, and I've only met her once backstage at the CMAs, so, of course, she was all decked out. But what I've heard is that she's always Dolly. She's always on. She's always dressed to the hilt and she's personifies her her the image that people have in their minds which i love that who are some of your heroes we'll say that you might have gotten to meet later on emmy lou who really championed us early on every time we would see her when we were we were pretty young she made a point to come over and encourage us and and stuff. She was probably my biggest influence. How did that feel to have Emmy Lou encouraging you? And just acknowledging that she knows your <laughs> name. And even now, I've met her, I've been around her so many times on Lilith Fair, and Emily and I played a winery, um, I guess, two Septembers ago. And um, 
she she said, hi, Marty. Hi, Emily. And how are you girls doing? And, and I just was still in awe that she remembered our names, you know. And I, I just remember one album in particular. It was actually on cassette tape. We would drive from Dallas up to uh, the Northeast to Pennsylvania, um, rural Pennsylvania, every summer. And um, we would play Roses in the Snow, the album of Emmy Liz, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And that was such a big influence, just wanting to play fiddle and banjo and sing harmonies and what I take away more than her music is just how her career has done these twists and turns and and it really seems like she's one of those longevity artists that keeps reimagining herself and redefining herself and following where her musical taste probably her personal musical tastes are, are taking her and not really worrying about where she's been and trying to top that or stay stay stuck to that style she keeps evolving and and then she yeah we'll go back and play some small thing or do what you're talking about um seems like she really does it for the love of music she lives it um well the most mortified i've ever been is we got hired to play a party on Nantucket. And it was this very wealthy couple's party. And they had flown us out there just to play this party. It was very hoity-toity, country clubbish kind of feel. And we had been at Soundcheck all day, and there was no air conditioning, and we were really hot. And we had, that was back when we loaded in our own stuff and loaded out, and we were part of everything. And so it came time for the show, and we got all ready. We'd been at the venue all day trying to get everything set up. And so the food came out, you know, the line, you know, people started getting in line. And so I was all dressed for the show and looked presentable. It's not like I was in my sound check clothes. And so I grab a plate and I get in line because <laughs> there's nothing backstage. There's not even water. And the woman who hired us to play the party came up to me and snatched my plate out of my hand in the middle of the line with all her guests and said that the food wasn't for the band. Oh. And I have never <laughs> felt so much shame. And I just couldn't believe she was so rude. And we hadn't, she hadn't fed us all day. And for that moment, I, I just thought to myself, I will never, ever treat anybody, no matter what, what, they are doing. I would never treat anybody like that. And, and I really, it really affected me for a long time, how horrible she was to me and how she shamed me. Wow. Yeah. Why did she even hire you for the gig if she wanted, if she was going to treat you like that? Well, what I found out later was that she wasn't very happy that our lead singer was flirting with her husband. So she was having a bad day. <laughs> and she was taking it out on me. So that made me feel a little bit better that she was having a hard day and maybe wouldn't have done that normally. Gosh, we had a, we had a pink RV and it, we got a really good deal on it because nobody, the interior was completely pink. 
pink carpet, pink couches, like kind of a mauvey pink. And I guess it just couldn't sell because it was so ugly. And we had a song at the time called Pink Toenails. So we thought it was fate that we get this reject <laughs> RV on the lot and we get such a great deal. And I can't believe we never really broke down. I mean, and the miles we put on that thing and we just, we hit all kinds of things and um, we're just terrible drivers and it seemed to hold up and it took us a lot of places. Um, I do remember we're in that pink RV and I don't remember where we were, someplace in Texas on some very barren highway and there was a tornado coming and we were listening, we could hear, feel the weather changing and we could hear on the radio that a tornado was coming and then it's coming like to the town we're just about to go through and so, and the winds pick up and this thing is like a shoebox on wheels. It's so cheap and have you ever been in just a really bad RV? Yes. You just, you know, it just feels like a box. A cardboard box and we were like we've, we've got to do something and we didn't have time to outrun it or turn around and so we and we started hearing the sirens going off in the town so we pulled over and we did what you're not supposed to do which is crawl under an overpass i found out later that the the um, it'll suck you out. I didn't okay. know that. Yeah, so that's the worst place to be. Probably maybe not as bad as being in your RV. But um, <laughs> so we all, the whole band, got out and we ran under the and we waited for the tornado to pass and the sirens to stop. And we were okay, but that was a little scary. You live outside of Austin. Right now, I live out in Lakeway. It's not, it's not great. I'm trying to move a little closer to town, actually. But as a city, city as a whole, I love Austin. I've never felt more at home. Growing up in Dallas, I just always thought of Austin as the cool part of Texas. <laughs> Dallas wasn't. Um, so I was always trying to get to Austin. Uh, I went to Southwestern University for a couple years, and that's out in Georgetown, just north of Austin. And so we would sneak down and try to... I had my older sister's expired driver's license and somehow I would get into bars with that and um, you know they were a lot more lax back then it wasn't a big deal and I just always kind of put Austin on a pedestal because um, I had so many fun times here and heard so many great bands here so um, between living in Dallas for 25 years I then moved to um, Nashville for a couple years and I really I really didn't enjoy living in Nashville. I think our record, the Dixie Chicks had just kind of broken and we were on the radio and I, I just felt like it was kind of this mainstream country town with Music Row and you'd go to the grocery store and people already had a Sharpie in their hand. It, it just felt very fanfare like fanfare that they do in Nashville. It just, I don't know, I think Nashville is a lot cooler than I gave it credit for and it's gotten a lot cooler. Um, but at the time it felt just just very much like um, I was under the microscope. So moving back to Texas felt right. And I, and I love raising my kids here. I have three daughters, twins that are eight and a four-year-old. And they go to the Waldorf School, and it's just such a great school. And so many musicians have kids there. And then, you know, you're just right here with all this amazing live music. And I feel really musically inspired here, too. I felt like we were always bucking a little bit of 
the industry, you know, early on. And, and I think having the background in bluegrass and then playing clubs for years and before we signed a deal was, was really good. I felt like we had a lot of maturity and, and knowledge to know, okay, that doesn't sound right and that does sound right. And an appreciation for just the hard work and what all the jobs that make a band you know, get to perform all those jobs. We did those jobs. We used to run sound. I ran sound from the stage. <laughs> this is actually funny. So we didn't know what we were doing at that time. It was a Caprice classic that we were, we'd put the doghouse bass in the back seat of the Caprice classic. And one Dixie chick would sit by, under the, this is pr prior to Natalie joining the band. We had two other lead singers. And I think Robin was the smallest, Robin Lynn Macy. She would sit under the head, the, the arm of the bass and the fingerboard, and she'd kind of crouch back there. And then three of us would be in the front seat. And then we'd get the banjo and the guitar and the fiddle in the trunk. So we would always have some, we would usually play for our supper or something, and maybe a little bit of cash. So we were playing some restaurant, and um, we had a sound man for one night. One night we were going to have a sound man. So the board was, the monitor board was always, we bought some little board at a pawn shop and two speakers and two sticks to stick the speakers on and maybe two monitors. And so we knew how to set everything up, but a real sound guy was going to come run it. So he set all the knobs for this outdoor, I think it was Culpepper Cattle Company out in Louisville or something. And so he, we set, he set the knobs for that night and we were so naive. We took a picture <laughs> of the board and where he'd set the knobs and we thought that's all we had to do for every gig just get so we so we stuck the picture on the top of the case that that folded down to cover the board i think it was like a 10 or 12 channel board um so we had the the polaroid up there and we would set all the knobs just like that one gig when we had the sound man and it, and it actually kind of worked whether we're indoors, outdoors, bigger venues, smaller venues, it seemed if we set the board just like that photo. That's the setting. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had heard we did. We just went to L.A. and, and wrote with Ryan, and that it, I didn't know what to think. And Emily had had a phone conversation with him prior to it, and, and she's like, I, I, I don't know how this is going to go because... All I know is I kept hearing pinball machines in the background and he kept saying, roll ball, roll. And, and then, and she was just so confused. Like what, what is going on? He wasn't really present in the conversation and he was kind of talking a mile a minute. And once I got there, I figured out what that was. He, I think he's such a musical genius that he he's like one of those artists that that creates constantly and he can't shut his brain off and he'll, he'll explain it this way too and so and he's not on he doesn't do drugs anymore and he doesn't drink and so he probably has this kind of addictive personality so he's gotten into vintage pinball machines so he has this huge warehouse just for himself he does it's not open to the public of he he thinks he owns almost every vintage pinball machine ever made and he can rattle them off he was sitting there one night just rattling off all these different and I, I you know I wasn't a big pinball person so I didn't know any of these machines but somebody who is would be very impressed with his collection so um, the whole time he's like that he's just constantly creating and and it's fun for somebody like Emily and myself 
um, just to have a constant flow of lyrical ideas and musical ideas. And you just feel like you're just grabbing them from the air. Like, oh my gosh, that's great. Oh, that's great. That's great. And um, it was really, really fun. And I guess I'd heard some horror stories about him and being kind of volatile. And I think that was like in his early days, maybe when he was drinking or, or doing drugs or something. But he's, he's delightful to be around. I felt like we worked well together, too. I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. Yeah, sure. I guess we're going to head over to Lucy's now. Yep, let's go hear some music. All right. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Marty for meeting up with me at my buddy Cameron's house in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Marty at DixieChicks.com or CourtyardHounds.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You could buy one of Amy's records. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, or leave a comment on there. It seems like not much, but it really goes a long way towards helping more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.